Hello, everybody, and thank you so much for coming back to Autopsy of a Horror Movie. Before I get to the interview with writer and director Nora Uncle, I want to give you a spoiler warning for her new movie, A Nightmare Wakes. I kind of forgot to give that spoiler warning during the interview because we kind of got right into things, but this was such an enjoyable experience having her on. She was so nice. We got to talk about her new movie, A Nightmare Wakes, which is available now on Shudder. We got to talk about Mary Shelley, Frankenstein, the filmmaking process, which she was so knowledgeable on, on all of those topics. So I hope that you get to enjoy this interview. Even if you haven't seen the movie, I think that you will still really get to enjoy it. And maybe it'll make you want to go check out her new movie that's on Shudder. All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope that you enjoyed the interview. Welcome back to Autopsy of a Horror Movie. My name is Brucker, and today I am joined by the very talented writer and director of the brand new Shudder exclusive movie, A Nightmare Wakes. I am joined by Nora Uncle. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a different kind of week for sure <laughs> with the movie coming out. I could imagine. Well, congratulations on your movie, A Nightmare Wakes, coming out on Shudder. On, it came out February 4th, I believe. Yeah, almost actually a week ago. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. It's been a fun adventure having it out there in the world for people to see finally. I'm sure that's got to be just a huge relief to have that out there. How Have you been able to celebrate any? A little bit. You know, it's of course, I would have loved to be able to be with the entire cast and crew and be able to celebrate all together and you know wild mm-hmm. wild amounts of champagne and all of that but um you know we we are being all safe and and pandemic-y so um have been doing more kind of closer to home celebrations and and you know just trying to connect with people who are watching the movie which is just a real real pleasure Oh, good. I'm glad that the process has been going well for y'all. Have y'all, Did y'all have any sort of like Zoom celebration with each other or anything? A little bit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the producers and I have really been trying to organize a few things here and there. And of course, I'm catching the cast on the occasion too. Like we're, we're doing some press things. We'll all, all come in at the end of their interview and we'll be able to be like, hey, great to see you. Have a fun time. Bye. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, we're, we're hoping to at some point to be able to do, you know, some form of, of in-person screening just to be able to be together for it you know when when it's safe to do so right absolutely and you guys deserve to definitely celebrate this um this this was a very fun uh project to watch and uh, i was uh, my viewing experience was a very interesting but i'll kind of get yeah. into that in a little bit but before we get started talking about a nightmare wakes i want to kind of just have a general discussion about the horror genre yeah. itself and would, would you i know that uh, you just released this horror movie onto Shudder, but would you consider yourself a horror fan? Definitely a horror fan. And I think what's fun, especially about Nightmare going on to somewhere sh- like Shudder, you know, there was lots of discussions with Shudder about well, maybe this isn't exactly what people think of when they think of as a horror film. And so it's been fun mm-hmm. to kind of explore um, what horror means for me as a fan and as a maker. Did this kind of change that that perspective at all especially from like the maker's standpoint absolutely yeah i think it's a lot of it is also just the shifting of society and what we deem as horror now you know these really interesting Mm -hmm. horror films such as you know these new age horror films like the witch it follows and and hereditary you know they're very 
different type of horror that is something probably more aligned with my sensibilities than some of the more um which i can still entirely enjoy some of the more slasher mm-hmm. flicks that you know were more prevalent in the 90s and, and 2000s okay so what would you say that uh the, the movies like that you just described kind of like those slasher sort of like subgenre would you say those have been kind of like a lesser influence and you kind of liked uh basically kind of like what are some of your turnoffs and turn-ons <laughs> for as a fan i have few turn offs other than extreme misogyny and racism probably um but right. other than that within the horror genre i'm i'm a fan of everything I, I really enjoy kind of seeing the different ways in which we can talk about fear and and um but i'd say my main influences are are a little bit further back you know i definitely grew up watching the original universal monsters movies um but i think my main influence has always been hitchcock films which i okay. i would argue are um kind of the one of the earliest places that we kind of see this new age of horror show up in hollywood you know this kind of psychological very um manipulative kind of horror um that Mm -hmm. i i always grew up really loving because it added a lot of nuance and layers to you know what it is to be human which ultimately is what i think a lot of horror film is doing so i'd say yeah you know the universal monsters and hitchcock were early influences but it's really been in watching people like yamal del toro um that's really Mm -hmm. influenced my idea of how i could find my voice in this medium so it's kind of like people that are very stylistic yeah. and in their approach to it and very stylized films and especially lots of creature features too with that as well. Absolutely. <laughs> and there's, you know, this wonderful essence of fantasy and magic behind all of it that I'm, I am a huge fan of. And I love that idea. And, you know, I think it's Nightmare and some of the other films that I'm very interested in are these tales of people being unable to cope with their reality around them and finding a mm. fantastical world in order to escape to. And I really discovered that through a lot of Guillermo del Toro's films and even through some of the Hitchcock films as well. I like that kind of finding this fantasy because a lot of people, I guess one of like the negative connotations with horror is that it displays violence so that it, it thus influences violence or whatever, but it's people that are fans of it always say, no, it's really just fantasy. You don't want these things to actually happen to people. It's, you know, just fantasy to get into. So I like that, uh, you know, kind of explaining you like stories that have to, or at least it sounds like like stories that deal with characters that are needing that fantasy escape as well. And kind of like how that world opens up within the world that we're viewing as well. Yeah. And, and like you just said, I think it's really based in character, right? I, I, I've mm-hmm. always, wow, that was a weird way to say that. I always connect to characters, first and foremost, and I think most audiences do. And so for me, when I get to follow a character as they are dealing with the world around them and as fantastical elements come out, that always gets me on on a, a ride. I just, I love that because it's it's one of the reasons we escape to movies is to be able to see things that we wouldn't necessarily be seeing in our real lives. Very true. And I guess that point you made about, you know, it seems to be character first for you. Um, for for uh, a nightmare wakes the my my experience going into it was I was one very excited because I saw the I saw a trailer and I think I read a description for it and I said this just sounds super fascinating and interesting to me and um, I got in contact with uh, some of your people that helped put this meeting together and they sent me a, a they're very kind and sent me a screener to watch it early oh, good. 
and which I took full advantage <laughs> of. And um, I, I think I tweeted out, uh, you know, sitting down to watch Nightmare Wakes, and one of the producers, Devin yeah. Shepard, she she tweeted at me, "Go, it's going to fuck up your day." And I was like, "Okay, that's great." <laughs> <laughs> accurate. <laughs> and, accurate. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, I was kind of a question I had when, uh, when from a, a filmmaker's uh, perspective or approach when you know making these movies that are sliding into some sort of subgenre of horror, is it more? What's kind of like? Your, is it more about the storytelling? Is it more about you know trying to entice fear, like, uh, or is it kind of just like these are the fears we're playing off of, and that's what works best for the story? Some sort of combination was my question too confusing no no that that makes a lot of sense it's an interesting way to think about it because yeah I think I approached it primarily through the emotion I think that's where I really connected to it and there was definitely a level of fear but it was bringing it back to Mary's sense of fear it was trying to bring back what she might have been experiencing and thinking of when coming up with this incredibly long-lasting horrific tale and so you know, oftentimes it was kind of us having to really hold our ground as to what this story was and what the tone and this kind of mix of genres mm. was um, while trying to figure out at the same time, how can we tell people what this is? How can we explain that? Because it does fall into this kind of mixed zone of, of genres. And, and it's, you know, I've heard it called a psychodrama. I've heard it called a psychological thriller and, you know, it, and with horror elements in, in between. And, I think all of those are probably right. It really kind of comes down to, you know, I was trying to replicate the tone of the novel. I was really trying to bring the essence of what that was originally, which was one of the first horror tales, but it was also horrific for people in the early 1800s, right, who were living by candlelight right. and who didn't necessarily have scientific, uh, well, even sci-fi films to talk about the fantasies of right. what, what could be. Um, and so for them, their fear base is in a very different place than what ours is. And and so I tried to bring that back to the human emotions of that, the universal element of that, which is, um, especially for Mary, it was, it was the motherhood and, and the loss of children and, and those horrors that I think people modern day can experience and understand, um, even though, you know, m the monster, as Mary originally wrote him, might not be as scary to modern audiences if it hadn't gotten, you know, the, uh, the universal treatment. Right. And I think it kind of goes back to kind of what you were saying earlier about it's about the character and not so, at least my opinion, not so much of the, the, the literal creature, but just kind of like what, what they're a metaphor of and what mm -hmm. they represent and the types of fears that taps into. And that's something I like to talk about on this show is the types of fears that the movies really play into. And, I will admit, I didn't know too much about Mary Shelley going into this movie. I, I mean, I knew that she was the author of Frankenstein and pretty much the, the the mother of science fiction. Watching this movie, it really showed me the parallels that you were really drawing towards, showing how where she probably had her inspiration, especially all the, the grief she went through with child loss, and how both her, Mary Shelley, and the character Victor F Frankenstein were both characters wanting to bring life into the world and how science or you know the universe god whatever 
was stopping them from having this and that kind of really kind of drew it was the first time i really saw that direct parallel between the author and the i guess what people would say is the villain of of the of the book uh victor frankenstein i'll admit i haven't read it uh <laughs> but um so that was that was very effective for me i'm like oh okay so it was kind of cool seeing the the wheels kind of turn in mary shelley here on screen and you, ca- you talked about the subgenre this goes into. I felt like this was a movie like I've never seen before, and that it was like a horror biopic, <laughs> and I've never seen that before. And it was I thought it was very interesting and very cool of just kind of making this story come to life. And because I was thinking, you know, how do how do you translate the story of somebody writing to screen? And I really enjoyed some of these set pieces that we got from this of how you went about that. Oh, thank you. Um, was that, did you find it, do you find that challenging at first to like, how do we tell the story of somebody writing a story for a movie? Oh gosh, yes. Um, you know, <laughs> when I first sat down to write it, I was actually really intending it to be just a straight biopic. You know, it was going to be just kind of, a, you know, BBC drama with a little bit of romance um and as i was writing i had this incredible mentor danny strong who has also written about other pretty famous authors in the past and he looked at the script and he's like nora nobody wants to watch a writer writing for two hours how can you show this in in a way that is going to entice a visual audience and it really got me thinking because yeah when you look at a writer writing and you're on the outside it's just somebody writing down in a notebook or typing on a computer looking dazed and a little crazed right it's not sexy at all at all (laughs) it's so boring and as somebody who does it daily you know it's really boring for for everybody around me but for me i'm in another world i am exploring mountains in china i am i am soaring through the skies you know as a bird i am going to these incredible wild places in my mind and when you're writing and when you're on a roll, it it doesn't feel like you're making it up. It feels like you're experiencing it and just being the scribe. You know, you're just writing it down. And and it was interesting because as I was writing Mary's story, Victor himself just kind of appeared on the page, completely unplanned, completely unexpected. Hmm. And he was just talking. And suddenly I realized that the way that I could get into this story was really through Mary's head and how she would have been experiencing, you know, these pieces of the novel that came together um, to tell this story. And I decided to kind of really bring in a lot of my experience of writing her story. So I guess it's very meta uh, in that it's like, it's a story about both me and Mary writing, me writing her story, her writing her story. Yeah. And, and, but how one might experience that in the creative process and kind of the lack of control that goes into that. Um, it was definitely difficult and sometimes hard to convince people of if they couldn't see it yet. Um, but it's my personal favorite parts of the movie because it feels like you're really kind of diving into a fantastical world and mm-hmm. and it, it always gets my heart beating fast because I, I get to see these snippets recreated that have always been in my brain from reading the novel. And I actually get to see them alive, you know. Did it take like a lot of like storyboarding for some of those like set pieces where she like literally steps into the world that she's kind of creating? For, for was it was that that kind of process? I'm just kind of curious about uh, like how were you able to 
sort of kind of like translated to like the actors and everything before going out there. Like, this is kind of like what it's going to look like. Well, we actually had a very interesting pre-production in that <laughs> <laughs> we had planned it uh, a certain way for a long time with storyboards and, and plans for a lot of these kind of fun trick shots that I, I love using that I steal I directly stole from Peter Jackson and Lord of the Rings, but um, we were doing that. And unfortunately one of our um, financiers had to step away uh, pretty last minute. And so about two weeks before the shoot, we had to completely replan the entire oh, wow. film. And that required a rewriting of the script. It required a reshot list required um, basically changing a lot of it and and so there was a lot of kind of trial and error in those two weeks leading up to the film of figuring out what we could get away with and what we couldn't um you know because ultimately we were left with my dp being an incredible badass um who we had to figure out okay what can we do with four lights and a tripod let's let's figure out that and and it really did come back to every decision was okay, how would Mary be experiencing this? How would she be seeing this? How would she be feeling about this? And so, you know, for instance, there was definitely a point where uh, we were going to shoot some of the lab scenes, uh, Victor's lab in a castle to kind of allude to the um. Universal Monsters film. Um, and then we we weren't able to get to that location with the schedule we had, so it was going to be in a barn. And, and then eventually we realized, you know what, actually... The best way to tell this is to show it as Mary would have seen it, which is, you know, she wrote this in the novel. He builds the body in a dorm room, essentially. There's no castle. There's no lightning storm. You know, it's very much a, a college kid making a, you know, human body in their dorm room. And so I thought, you know, actually, I think this was the idea of my production designer where we were like, well, Mary is looking at her bedroom. She's looking at the four walls around her and she's reimagining these things. So why don't we bring the lab into her bedroom? And so we actually have every scene that we go into this fantastical world is in the same set, in the same room as um, Mary's own bedroom that she spends the majority of the time in, in the film. Yeah, I, I gotta say, that was probably my favorite part of the movie. Uh, not going to lie, one of my favorite things was... Uh, and I thought it was so effective to really show the writing process and the creative process of Mary Shelley in this because you kind of see because you see the room start to slowly turn into her vision because you're like, I, oh, this I recognize this room. And now we're seeing, oh, there's some uh, like surgical utensils. Oh, there's the right. body on the on the uh, bed or what or table. I mean, body on the table. And there there's Victor uh, right there, but we don't see his face. And it's um, it was just I, I really like that in the one of the things I loved about this movie too was the the score. The music was beautiful for this, Thank you. and for especially for scenes like that, it was super effective because it really swelled. Because for most yeah. of the movie, it's it's dramatic, and you know, because she's going through a lot in this, and very you know dramatic and not not very uplifting. But when we got these moments, this is when we kind of start to really see her vision and how she's getting joy from it too and it's kind of cathartic for her to go through her own demons and emotions this way and um it was just it all just came together super well for those set pieces that's something i really enjoyed oh thank you so much this it's my favorite moment of the film as well so i'm so glad it's translating <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was it was great and again just it just made sense it something that i wanted to ask because i'm sure i don't know if you listen to like movie podcasts or anything but ours like go on forums or whatever but sometimes 
audiences can kind of take a little bit too much of a stretch going oh picking a small detail going oh that was definitely on purpose for this or whatever a small stupid thing i noticed and it could have been completely by coincidence but the shutters and the wallpapers were all green i was like oh green kind of like frankenstein but i was wondering if that was on purpose or not or that just happened to be how the house came uh a little bit uh, a little bit of both <laughs> i would say yeah what was wonderful and thank you for noticing those details um that was actually very much there's this one shot of uh the wall that mary would face when she's laying in bed and it's this cracked wallpaper cracked paint right that's kind of greenish and we see at one point like a Mm -hmm. drip of ink coming out of it and we actually used that as inspiration for our creature's makeup as well to try to connect those Uh, two back again to the creature that people might immediately recognize as well as the way that mary describes the creature in the novel Uh, So that was a little bit on purpose. And it was also, we were incredibly lucky that uh, that location we were shooting in, uh, it's called Hyde Hall. And it's up in upstate New York in Cooperstown. And it's this beautiful, huge manor home. And they really opened their doors to us and were like, pick a room. What room do you want it to be? We'll (laughs) we'll get the right furniture in there and we'll make it happen. And so we found this, right? It was a true, true privilege to be able to work with them. And... So we found this room and we loved the that feeling of kind of decay that was coming from those that green wall and the cracked nature of it. And we liked the a- aspect that it had the two windows that we could be playing with some of the moonlight and some of the different um, lighting effects that we want to do later on in the film. So yeah, a little bit of both. And it was just lucky that that was, happened to be the room that was painted, whereas most of the other ones were white. So it was great. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Okay, it's good to know I'm not just crazy. And thank. <laughs> thank you for noticing those details. Most filmmakers kind of, you know, we put those in there with the kind of hopes that maybe, you know, I can talk about them someday. Nobody's going to notice these things. But so thank you. <laughs> I will say it, it became way more obvious on my second viewing because mm. I'm the kind of per- I need to watch it at least twice to really get everything and it was the second viewing oh hey those are green um (laughs) right i've actually heard that several times about the film in that i think a lot of people are entering with kind of a set set expectations of what they think it might be whether it's biopic a straight biopic or a straight adaptation of frankenstein and and i've actually heard a few people be like i didn't like it the first time through and then i went and rewatched it and realized oh now that i'm not coming in with preconceived ideas of what it is I'm, I'm seeing other details. I'm seeing more to it. Um, and I've appreciated that because there is, a, it's not a film that kind of hands you all the answers. It is no, something it that makes it. you work for it a little bit. Yeah. It's very much, you got to pay attention to these, like just kind of like one-off lines, whatever and stuff. Cause I will say I was a tiny bit confused the first time I watched it. Fair. Uh, Cause I felt a little bit lost at the end. I was like, Oh crap. Like was, who who is the antagonist in this? And I was like, so I went back and watched it, and I kind of really realized that, um, or at least my interpretation is, Percy kind of seems a bit of a disease mm. um, in this, um, and kind of I guess my tell me if you think that's <laughs> off base, but uh, so we see that first set piece where she does kind of walk into the the, the laboratory when she's as she's writing it, but we don't see the face of Victor. Mm. And then it's not until after uh, Percy rapes her that we see his face and it's Percy. Right. Percy's face is Victor. Right. And it's kind of like she now is drawing inspiration from this person that she's seeing as a, her real life villain. 
and there's also some other things too like yeah he re- kind of refused to marry her at first and, she, and she's definitely kind of going tapping to some of those fears of you know rejection and shame um and while she's also experiencing the fear of, of extinction she's having trouble you know bearing children in this and which was also true true to her real life as well um you don't need me to tell you that um <laughs> <laughs> But and then at the end of the movie is when it all kind of clicked for me too, because the the movie opens up with Percy's wife right, right. Uh, walking into the water and drowning, and it's at the end of the movie when he says, I think some of the long lines of I've driven you mad just as I did with her, right, and that he's kind of this cancer for some reason to these women. And it's after he dies, she's able to finish her novel, mm-hmm. have a healthy baby, and is financially stable on her own because of the book. Right. Yeah. So kind of like removing that was like where she was able to finally get her full success. I love that interpretation. Yes. I, there's definitely, um, that's a huge part of it. And I think also there's this question for her that, you know, while that's all happening, she's also being gaslit. She's being told that she's mm. the problem, that she's going crazy, um, that she, you know, shouldn't be asking for for more than what she's being given. You know, uh, one of the reasons for that rape scene is is also to bring to the to light the fact that that wasn't considered rape then. That wouldn't have con- been considered uh, improprietous at all. Uh, that that would be normal relations for a lot of couples. And so it's to bring to question this idea of immediately labeling her as mad, immediately labeling her as the destructive force, you know, because I think within her lifetime, at least, I think she blamed herself. You know, she's living at a time when a lot of society is telling you that, you know, anything that goes wrong with a pregnancy, anything that goes wrong with a baby Mm -hmm. is the woman's fault, is the mother's fault. And because science just wasn't evolved enough yet, we didn't know that there's a lot of things that can go wrong and it's not just you know the emotional state of a woman that dictates how a how a pregnancy goes um obviously it has influences but i'm just saying there's more to it and uh, i think for this there's an obvious correlation one could make and i think a lot of scholars have made uh that mary and the creator have direct connections but i think that you know reading her letters she describes Percy as her inspiration for Victor and in reading the novel which is very different than some of the film adaptations Victor is one of the worst people I have ever read about he is awful he is just he treats all of the people in his life horribly um and callously and and doesn't own up to his mistakes and I think it was really interesting in reading Mary's letters and seeing her talk about how Percy was the direct inspiration for that and so I really thought about, okay, well, if if Percy is her inspiration for Victor, for this horrible character that treats his creation with such disgust and such disdain and who abandons his creation after lifting it up and, and making it think that it's, you know, worth living, he just abandons it, that maybe Mary doesn't see herself connected to that as much as she sees herself connected to the creature who was abandoned to the mm. the being that is not being taken seriously for its outside persona or outside um what am i looking for appearance or uh, yeah. oh thank you yes for its outside appearance um not being taken seriously to even hear what it has to say um you know and in in the novel itself it's one of the most eloquent mm. 
written characters ever. And it's beautiful and tragic and heartbreaking. And and so, yeah, it was very much kind of trying to find where the pieces of her life might have connected into that novel and how Percy, even though we laud him today still as a feminist and as a forward thinker, as somebody who's really kind of um, was ahead of his time, that even still he treated the women in his in his life pretty abysmally and he was while a supportive force to mary in many ways was also a destructive force and that it was through her traumas with him and their offspring and all of the other deaths surrounding right. her in life that really kind of led her into this world where you could make life without having to give birth i guess it's interesting that she decided to make victor a male character because that was something i was kind of curious once mm. once i was drawing the parallels between the two and mary and victor and trying to uh, bring life i always thought well i wonder why she didn't make that a woman character a female character because of you know i guess the obvious process of childbearing um but i guess it was kind right. of just more i guess that makes more sense now knowing that she was drawing direct uh, inspiration from Percy. I, th- I think it also has to do with the time, you know, uh, unfortunately, we're not much past it now. But you know, especially at that time, the most famous female author of her time, Jane Austen is writing about romance, and women finding husbands. She's not writing about deathly sick creatures being pulled up from graves and giving birth, uh, giving mm-hmm. life again, right? And so there was actually, Mary had a lot of hard, a very hard time even getting it published at all. Um, and I believe she had to get it published without her name on it um, at first and eventually had to add her name later. And today it's still argued that that Percy might have been the one who wrote it. And so, you know, it's... I. I would say probably the reason she didn't write a main female protagonist in that is very simply sexism Mm. and not being able to even have this book see the light of day had she made it too feminine. But I think that's why we have to read between the lines and we have to see that, okay, she couldn't write that about that directly. She couldn't write about the loss of miscarriage and the deaths of her children and the abuse of her husband. So she wrote it in code and it's, it's up to us to kind of interpret that code. While we're talking about Percy, uh, something that I kind of want to talk about or ask you about how was the sort of like casting process for that character? Because I find it super interesting that, you know, you have the actor for Percy uh, portray both Percy and Victor. So Mm -hmm. going into that approaching that were you trying to find somebody who portrayed percy more or someone who portrayed victor more or was it kind of like you're trying to find this mesh of the two and sorry to completely derail the conversation <laughs> that way <laughs> no i love that i love that um you know it was really difficult because all of the roles in the film really require a lot of the actors you know there's few that you know you can kind of phone in um especially my mary and my percy i knew that the relationship between them was going to be essential for us to be able to believe mm-hmm. the film to get yeah. through the film and so once i f- uh, i found alex for my mary who did a wonderful job she by was, the way oh thank you she's just incredible and and she i knew it from first seeing her face i was like i think it's her that's <laughs> the one send me a tape and she better be as good as i think she is and of course she was better <laughs> and uh <laughs> and so from there it was really finding okay what is the balance that really kind of 
will bring this love story and also this destructive mm. story to light. And so I, I, I actually saw dozens and dozens of tapes for every single role. And uh, funny enough, Julian, uh, who plays Percy uh, and Victor, uh, Julian and I had actually worked together many times back at NYU when we'd gone to school together. And uh, I had I'd always seen him in these roles that were so positive and cheery and and, you know, uh, American. And and I hadn't, you know, even thought to to talk to him. And I got his tape and I was just like, what? <laughs> you can do this? This is incredible. And it it just, again, blew me away with how much of an incredible artist he is. But also in that he he gave me two distinct characters completely different people with his victor and with his percy but he brought this connection to them this this heart to them that was really really intriguing to watch and i think what really worked about him and what made me fall in love with him as the idea for percy was that while percy does some pretty atrocious things in the film Julian brings this youth and this innocence to him that allows you to still see kind of the heart behind that and 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 to be able to understand that like he's a nuanced person he's not all bad he's not all good he's just a complicated person who handled certain situations really badly mm-hmm. and handled other ones a little bit better but i wanted us to be able to still respect him enough or care about him enough that we didn't lose respect and love for mary gotcha okay so it was kind of like he the character was a sort of kind of like a product of his time unfortunately sort of uh like we because we, we do see that you know he does genuinely care about mary but as you described because of you know how things were back then he was also kind of really shitty too so right and i think that's it's also interesting to you know i i tried to bring in some modern sensibilities both within the dialogue and the characters and kind of just in the approach to the film in general, because I think um, there's something to be said that that there's a lot of men still like him out there today that are, are not necessarily seeing their actions as not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so I wanted to kind of bring to light kind of the fact that Mary and these people were really living ahead of their time. They really were, you know, something people don't really talk about often, right? Mary, Percy, Byron, they were all partying all the time. Uh, you know, Byron was bisexual. He was having sex with like anything that moves across Europe, you know, and Percy believed in free love. So was kind of following suit. And, you know, they were doing drugs. They were drinking all the time. They were, you know, at, at this time when they met up, I think it was they were all younger than the age of 30. You know, so it's I think we forget mm-hmm. often What's about it? their youth. What was, was that? She 19, Mary, when she wrote this. Yeah, she was 19, 19 after already having had a kid and uh, suffering a, a late-term mm. seven-month miscarriage. So it's just the strength of that woman, yeah. my goodness. But yeah, so I, I wanted to talk about them in the complexities as we would treat modern characters to hopefully bring to light some of the similarities that you know women and creators like Mary might be experiencing today um, that you know Mary had to suffer through then, through the hands of Percy. Alex Wilton Regan, I thought she just did a fantastic job as Mary. Um, it was not boring at all watching, pretty much just being stuck in the house with her in this movie. It wasn't boring at all, you know. Um, yes. Oh, that's and, good. Because <laughs> uh, I know that's kind of a, a thing that's 
kind of hard to convey, you know, because we are in the house with her pretty much for most of the movie. Right. And I will, yeah. I will admit one of, that's kind of one of my, um, one of my personal preferences. I actually really like stories and movies that take place in one location. I don't know why, because I find yeah. it, you know, that much more, um, difficult to really tell a convincing story because it's all on character then it's not so much on action or you know movement or anything like it's really on character and while you were able to still get really creative with those set pieces that we talked about earlier and still having fun with it um she was just great in this what what was uh, i asked for percy now for uh mary what was kind of like the most important like characterization of mary that you felt like the actor really needed to be able to convey was it kind of just like her fear or her i i, I don't want to i don't know if i want to like narrow down a one because there are scenes where she goes through like the whole spectrum because there's one <laughs> scene where we see her go from grief to uh anger to madness or you know madness and then back to grief and sadness and like all in the span of a couple of minutes and so what what were some of the like important things like, okay, this character or this actor really needs to portray X, Y, and Z? Yeah, I mean, absolutely part of that was she needed to be able to have that range. You know, we needed to be able to believe these different levels of emotion that she's going to express over a lot of the movie. Um, but I think it was, I wanted to find somebody that could convey strength, intelligence, and vulnerability in equal measure. And because I think Mary didn't know how strong she was, we can look at her now 200 years later and be like, wow, look at you, look at what you survived, look at what you made and and look at how long it's lasted. But you know, for her, those successes were not really happening in her lifetime. And she was just having to grit her teeth and bear it. And so, you know, she wouldn't necessarily have ever considered herself like a strong woman. You know, she's just she was a woman who was surviving her Mm -hmm. life and who was making making art through it. And um, but I needed us as an audience to feel that strength and to know that it was her story and that this was this was somebody that we needed to know more about. Um, But it's also I think I think there's this horrible idea that women's emotion is is weakness Hmm. and and it's something that really disturbs me because I think it's one of our greatest strengths and to have a character who is using her miscarriages using the deaths of her children as a way to funnel a story to the masses that talks about everlasting life essentially Mm -hmm. um there's a strength there. There is there is somebody that's willing to look past her own circumstances and 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 see hope, and um, who is able to channel her emotions into something very very productive, <laughs> and and so I wanted to show that Mary is incredibly emotional and how that can get twisted by people into thinking that she's crazy, but in fact it it was in that channeling of those emotions that she was able to come up with Frankenstein. Mm. Um, yeah. Would you say that? Um, so I, I meant to ask this at the beginning uh, <laughs> for uh, <laughs> just getting the ball rolling for this project because you said that you are a fan of the Universal monster movies. You kind of grew up on those. I've, I myself have. I got the box set for Christmas. I've been going through them, and they're just so much fun. Amazing. They're so much fun. Ugh, yeah, it's right? great. Like uh, I've yet to see Frankenstein, but I've seen James uh, Whale's other movie, uh, 
the old dark house which i love and oh, and like the nice. invisible man which is great um and yeah. so <laughs> what where would you say was kind of like your main influence or inspiration for this? Was it Mary's story or did you kind of like Frankenstein first and then you researched it and like, and you kind of found her story through that? So I'll be honest, my favorite Frankenstein film that I grew up watching probably every couple of months was Young Frankenstein. Oh my, I love Young uh, Frankenstein, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm obsessed. Uh, yeah, it, that's the movie we watched on rap night. That's the movie we watched uh, on premiere night. I feel so validated right now. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, so I always loved those. But I was actually, it was about eight years ago. And I was, I got trapped in my apartment during Hurricane Sandy. And I had a copy of Frankenstein that I'd never read. And a couple candles. And I was like, okay, you know, may as well scare the crap out of myself now. Let's, uh, let's do this. And I opened it and Mary ha- had written a foreword herself about 15 years after the publication that this this particular copy had included. And it talked about, obviously, this dark and stormy night that where she, Byron and, and Polidori and Percy, where they all came up with these stories. But then she also makes mention of, of a miscarriage and of some of her children. And I put the book down before starting it and I was like, huh. How did I not like I forgot even that a woman wrote Frankenstein and I really did not know that she was 19 and that she was suffering from a miscarriage. I wonder if that affected the novel at all. And so I started doing some research and I was like and the more research I did, honestly, the angrier I got Mm. because I was like, how can we be 200 years after this novel with it being as popular as it is and still not know that this is a woman's story Mm. how do we how are we not talking about the fact that you know a 19 year old girl lost a seven-month child inside of her and then came up with a story that was about having giving life without having to give birth how are we not talking about that you know and i think that really inspired me to kind of change the conversation, you know, and, and, and it, I love the early universal monster movies and Frankenstein as, as, you know, um, films. Mm. But then when I rewatched it uh, with knowing what Frankenstein was, cause obviously I went back and read the book fully and in the, in the novel going on a little bit of a no, tangent, sorry, in the novel, uh, the creature is one of the most eloquent characters, uh, it's pain and and speeches are just so beautiful and having known what i knew about mary going into it they they read to me as journal entries mm-hmm. from a 19 year old girl they read to me as as somebody desperate for acceptance and understanding and and literally not having the language to be able to connect to anybody around them and so then when i went and watched the, the universal monster movies again I was like, and you silence the creature after all this too? Uh, you know, it's you, while this is, these are fun and they're really, you know, exciting movies, they kind of lost the entire heart of the novel. Mm-hmm. They, they lost everything that Mary was actually talking about. And so I wanted, I was really inspired and I was like, I want to tell story through the author's eyes because I think especially with this one and I think modern day we're talking about this a lot right now can you remove the artist from the art and i think especially with this one you can't Mm. you cannot remove this incredibly devastating and tragic story about uh creating life from the mother Mm -hmm. who wrote it 
it's it's kind of like maybe like possibly like one of the like earliest examples on on screen of you know like the male gaze that's a perfect way to put it yeah absolutely and that's a that's very interesting uh kind of her telling more of her story through the creature's story too that's some again something i'm kind of now connecting the dots with a little bit more um I got through the movie, but I wasn't sure how that translated into the novel because I haven't read it. But that's yeah. fair. That's fair. <laughs> but yeah, and that yeah, so that does sound very interesting about how um, it's a good parallel of how you're kind of talking about earlier how she may seem like a mad person just because she has emotions and griefs and she's right. expressing that and she comes off as this monster. But this monster in the you know in the book, its appearance is monster like, but it has thoughts and it you know can formulate them and is articulate and you know just mm-hmm. understand yeah. the emotions that it's going through yeah exactly and there's a line in the film that i put in there that i think is one of the most important lines of the of the whole film but like you said i think you have to pick up all these little mm-hmm. details along the way right but there's a there's a moment where Mar- mary says i am not mad i choose this and i think that's really really the core of her character where She's not going crazy. She just is looking at the reality around her and is not accepting of it anymore. She's not willing to to keep being destroyed by it. And so she chooses to escape into her novel, into a place where she has control and where she has respect and where she is the one, you know, and she uses this power as we see in the novel with how she gets back at Elizabeth. But she, you know, has the power of her own pen somewhere. And so... Why not escape to that instead of having to live in the reality? Uh, I had a had a really good time watching it, rewatching it, and picking up all like the little things, which is always fun to do. You know, when you go, when yeah. I feel like that if I were to watch this a third time, I would even pick up a little bit more because it, it's 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 a kind of subtle movie um, at times. And there's it is. nothing wrong with that, but yeah, there's lots of. Uh, that's fun. You know, you get to pick up lots of things. That's, you know, I'm a, I'm addicted to rewatching and, and maybe it's the anxious person in me. So I like watching things where I know where it's going to go. Um, but I, I, I always find that a film that has rewatch value that allows you to find new pieces every step along the way. You know, my favorite pieces of art, like Lord of the Rings or mm. Pan's Labyrinth or Buffy, you know, Every watch is a completely new experience. And so I was hoping to do a little bit of that while also, you know, giving the first experience, hopefully not too much confusion. <laughs> is, is it weird watching your own uh, movies? It's so strange. You, you, it's just you judge yourself so much, you know, because it's it's also like I wrote this eight years ago. We shot it two years ago. Oh, wow. And I, I, you know, I'm I'm a different filmmaker today than I was then. And and so there are certain decisions. I'm like, oh, I might make those differently now, but you know, it's, but it's, it's fun because you get to see kind of a a solidified example of who you were at a certain time and who the group of artists that you were working with were at a certain time. And so when you can get past the judgment and try to enjoy it a little bit, you know, luckily I have John's amazing score and Oren's amazing cinematography and Alex's amazing performance that I can focus on those and not really have to focus on my own decisions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could kind of just maybe try to relax a little bit and just kind of enjoy right. it. Uh, did, <laughs> I saw this on IMDb. I just want to ask if it was true. Did Did you sing the, the wedding song? I did. Oh. <laughs> 
Well, no, no, it's good. I'm not, I'm not criticizing it. It was good. Yeah, you don't need to be embarrassed. Yeah, no. Yeah. Sorry, I just hit my desk. But yeah, no, that's, it was good. I, I, I thought that was really, because one of the things that stuck out to me the most was the music. It was just so good. And uh, the, I, I, I watch movies with subtitles just because I, I just need it. And yeah. I need audio and visual. And um, when I was kind of, you know, reading the lyrics of that song during the wedding thing, it was not joyful you know it, it's it's right. kind of like this was i don't know going towards her de-evolution into the the monster everyone saw her as eventually and one of the first steps for it and that song really personifies that oh thank you yeah and, and good performance it's exactly <laughs> oh thank you thank you we needed a free singer and i was free um <laughs> and uh yeah I like that you said personifies because I think, you know, that's the only time we hear a human voice in the score Mm -hmm. through the whole uh, film. And it was important to me in that moment, especially during that wedding scene um, that, you know, most of the time you'd see a period romance film and you see a wedding and it's a super uplifting, exciting event. Like this is great. And I wanted to show that this was actually essentially their breakup. This Mm. is almost the, the, the linchpin in their relationship and I wanted to hear that pain through a female voice um, while we're we're seeing that. So it almost feels kind of like a funeral, if anything, rather than a wedding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it did have that feeling as a funeral for sure. So the song is actually a, um, it's from an early English opera and it's the, a character's dying song. Oh. You know, she's dying in the arms of another character asking for, for them to remember her well. And I felt it was very apropos with everything that mary kind of goes through <laughs> oh, wow yeah that was good find for that <laughs> <laughs> that was all my wonderful composer thank you <laughs> this how has your experience been working with shutter to get this out so has this been has it been like a, a good experience do you see yourself maybe trying to do this again because everything's kind of going towards streaming these days anyways oh if they'll take me i'll take them you know um <laughs> Yeah, no, Shudder's been wonderful. And what I really appreciate that about them, especially, is that they've really been fans of the project since the beginning, oh, since they awesome. first heard about, about it. And they've been really encouraging. And um, we especially have worked with a, this wonderful man named Sam at Shudder. And, and Sam, every time I was discouraged, every time I was worried, you know, people weren't understanding this blending of genres and, and this direction we were going, he'd always be like, no, nope, this is your the right direction. This is it keep going keep going oh, and good. and so when we got to partner with him on the project it was just a true dream come true because we knew that they weren't going to try to sell this as something that it wasn't mm-hmm. you know because i think with this mix it's really it's really key that we don't tell everybody this is going to be a monster flick right or this is going to be a really really intense you know um slasher horror film and and Instead, you know, the the Shutter team was really, really um, present in making sure that we were evoking the right tone in our in all of our materials going out, so that you know people could appreciate the movie for what it is, and instead of rather what they wanted it to be. It's so nice to hear they had that support for this because you always hear yeah. about how I don't know producers or whatever kind of meddling and giving them worse ideas, you know. Uh, so right. it's really awesome to hear. Was it Sam Zimmerman by chance? Yes, okay, that's awesome. Yes, Sam Zimmerman, uh, my favorite. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's the best. If, if if 
if you ever hear anything that he recommends or suggests he's right yeah just just watch it yeah, yeah. For, for those listening <laughs> he's the curator over at shutter so he's the one curating the movies there and the selection so that's awesome yeah. Uh, well, uh, before we kind of wrap things up, I'd like to kind of ask, uh, do you have any sort of future projects in mind or any sort of just, would you like to stay in horror? Do you want to do pretty much, what are you interested in working on? Oh, yeah. I I feel like I have so many stories I want to be telling. There's so many directions I want to be going. I love horror mm-hmm. and I plan to make as many horror movies as I can. <laughs> uh, and I also want to explore other genres. Uh, you know, this pandemic has really been a wonderful time to explore what types of stories I want to be telling. So, you know, I've been writing a lot, which is great. And I have a, qu- a few projects that are kind of underway. Um, and, you know, on one side, I have this hilarious, uh, you know, kind of Pixar animated short or animated story which as i said i've been exploring new mediums um and that's been fun but the my main projects i i have two right now that um i'm working on a film called ashes and that's a um another period horror film um more direct straight horror i would say and it uh, focuses on uh, some scottish folklore and especially centering around a banshee character yes and uh And then the other one that I'm in a, a year-long lab for right now, it's called Bruja, and it's a modern-day um, film that, you know, the title is probably tells you a little bit, but it's it's set in Mexico, and uh, it's something I'm writing with a, a partner who's going to be directing. So, awesome. yeah, lots of fun stuff, and I'm, I'm very, hope, very hopeful that once this pandemic is safe again and we can be making things that i can you know attack the industry with about 10 scripts and get something made <laughs> fantastic oh i wish you luck on that and i look forward to seeing any sort of projects that you do you know put out there into the ethers for uh, us to consume uh i i, Thank I you. did have a note it let me know if you hate this i'll edit it out but uh, a nightmare <laughs> awakes is kind of a secret quarantine movie because it all takes place in the house with a pod of people I love that. I love that. We were joking about that ourselves when we were also talking about, you know, when it was going to be getting released. And and I loved it. Sam was like, this is a winter movie. You know, this this feels like a group of people locked up in their house in the middle of winter. You know, that's what this feels like. And I was like, yeah, quarantine. People are going to get this. <laughs> you know, it, like it's back and forth because you're like, oh, I hope people you know, enjoy that rather than some of the more escapism things that are coming out. But but I think it it is a little bit of actually, you know what, I'm going to go and say it's 100 percent a quarantine <laughs> film, because in fact, the uh, the group that met at Villa Diodati, um, you know, Byron and, and Mary and all of them, they were actually quarantining. They were or not quarantining, but they were stuck inside completely unable to go out into the world for an entire summer because I don't know if you know this, this is a fun little fact. Um, but there was a huge volcano that went off in uh, Southeast Asia, oh. I think that year. And it's the, one of the biggest volcanoes that has ever gone off in the history of the world. And it covered the world in ash for a year. So it was literally known as the year with that summer. And so the, um, the, storm clouds and the, there was snow and rain and ice and and basically this entire group while you know vacationing on the beautiful lake geneva were forced to stay inside and that's actually what got them to come up with the ideas of ghost stories oh interesting i like that yeah 
So I'll go all the way and say it's a quarantine film. Enjoy it. <laughs> Whether it's the virus or volcanic ash. Yeah, you got to. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about protecting the lungs, you know? Absolutely. Well, thank you, Nora, so much for coming on. You've been a good sport. You've been sitting uncomfortably this whole time. I got to give you good sound. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for coming on. Uh, everybody, be sure to go to Shudder and check out her movie, And Nightmare Awakes. And is there any place that you like people to find you on social media or anything? Yeah, come say hi. I'm on Instagram and Twitter mainly, just Nora Uncle, I think. Uh, yeah, come say hi. Love to hear what you think about the film. Sounds great. I'll put those links in the show notes so that people can swipe over and click that. And Perfect. thank you again so much for taking time out of your busy day. And I hope that once everybody gets vaccinated, everything you guys get to celebrate properly. So. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. And it was so lovely to speak with you. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. And for everybody listening, be sure to tune in next week for my kill grade on Sleepaway Camp. See you guys next time. And Nora, thank you again.